author and speaker Randy Alcorn. Some of you know he know Randy Alcorn. He's wrote a big book on heaven. Um, he tells the story of a man who told him, I love God, but the truth is I want to live with Jesus forever on this earth without all the sin and suffering. And Randy goes on to say, what he longed for is exactly what God has promised. I am convinced, Randy still talking, I am convinced that the typical view of heaven, eternity in a disembodied state, is not only completely contrary to the Bible, but obscures the far richer truth that God promises us eternal life as totally healthy, embodied people, more capable of worship, friendship, love, discovery, work, and play than we ever have been. So we're going through Revelation 21 and 22. We're going to finish that up today. Trying to behold and consider and long for this hope that God has given us his people. This renewed creation, new heavens, new earth. And there are certainly some images here, some pictures that are hard for us to grasp, hard for us to comprehend, but it will help us greatly if we remember what Randy says, that this is a picture not of heaven up there, but of life on this earth. God created the physical, tangible earth and universe, and he created a good, uh, good. God created us as human beings with our physical bodies, and this was very good. And what God will do at the end is not do away with all of that, but radically renew it. Radically, radically renew this creation and our bodies for us to live here forever with him. And we're going to be at the end of chapter 21 today, Revelation 21, and we're going to dig a little bit deeper into some of these images and consider what they mean. But before we do that, to briefly catch us up, let's reread the first three verses of Revelation 21. Just This is where this vision that John, who um, the author of Revelation, this vision that God has given him begins, this particular vision. So it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So this phrase, new heavens and new earth, again, should point us back to Genesis 1, where God first created the heavens and the earth, which is everything that is, the universe. So this isn't about God taking us up into heaven in the clouds, but about God preparing a new or renewed creation for his people for all eternity, a world much like this one. In this vision of a new creation... We see a, or John sees a city coming down out of heaven to the earth called New Jerusalem. Now, again, Jerusalem is the name of the city in the Old Testament that was the city of the people of God, where God dwelt among his people. And then we are told that this city is also a bride. So you have overlapping images here. You have this city, but it's also called a bride. And if you go on a little bit further in Revelation 21, it's specifically called uh, the bride. The city is the bride. 
And the bride in Revelation is the church. This is another image picture for the church, God's people. So there are layers of images here, but they are all pointing to, they are all referring to God's people. This is a picture. We are given, be, being given a picture of the church redeemed and made glorious by the blood of Christ, their Savior. And God's people are not going up here, but are coming down to dwell on the earth, where we are told God will dwell among them. Now, this idea of God dwelling among his people is absolutely central to the Bible's vision of our future state, that God will dwell among his people in a, in a new and, and glorious way. Scripture assumes that this is the best part, that this is the high point of what is to come, that we will dwell in the presence of God. This is the thing that we are to most long for. And so the section we're going to cover today digs, it, digs into this a little bit more, helps us to reflect on and consider what this means. So we're going to start in verse 22. Revelation 21, chapter 22. It says, And I saw no temple in the city. So this vision of the city coming down out of heaven. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Now, what's the point in saying that there's no temple in this vision of a city? Well, if you think about the temple, the temple is something very significant in the life of God's people, in the life of Israel, throughout the Old Testament. Um, the temple is a significant feature in Scripture. The temple in Jerusalem, and before that, there was a tent or tabernacle that the people um, packed up and carried with them when they were wandering through the desert. This was where the presence of God resided. This is how God chose to dwell among his people. By setting up this temple, by God having them set this up, he was teaching them that they were his. And he was teaching them that they could live and they were to live in a relationship with him. God was going to dwell there among them. That's what the temple signified. Now, this was obviously a great thing. This was a good thing. But it's also a fearful thing and a weighty thing, especially if you know the history of Israel throughout the Old Testament. God's presence was not to be taken lightly. And so for the priests who ministered in the temple, there was lots of rules and rituals for them to cleanse themselves in order to become, come into the holy presence of God. And in fact, only the high priest could come into the innermost part of the temple, the Holy of Holies, and that just once a year. On the Day of Atonement, when he would make atonement for the people's sins, give, make sacrifice for the people's sins. And so all of this was communicating to the people that God's presence is a seriously weighty thing. It's a good thing, but it's a serious thing, not to be taken lightly. And it communicated that humanity must be cleansed of their sin, forgiven of their sin, if they are to draw near to God. We must be cleansed of our sin if God's presence among us is to be a good thing. If the people persisted in rebellion against God, which they did time and again, they were susceptible to God's judgment. So you have this phrase often in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord. 
probably read this, heard of this, the day of the Lord. It's a phrase used throughout the Old Testament to speak of a time when God would draw near, when his presence would come near, in glory and power he would make himself known. And you might think, well, that's a great thing. Surely that is a, a joyful, a thing of great joy and comfort and salvation. But not usually. In Scripture, it is not usually a great thing. It is often presented as a day of gloom and darkness and judgment because God's people or other people have been rebellious. So just one example of this in Amos 5, we read, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? Now, if you, when we jump to Revelation 21 and 22, this idea of God dwelling among his people, this idea of God's nearness, of God's presence, no longer has any of this fear and threat and judgment to it. Right? It is a good thing. Because for those who've had their sins atoned for, those redeemed and cleansed and forgiven by the blood of the Lamb, those who've put their trust in God's mercy and compassion, His nearness no longer, and His presence no longer has any threat or fear or judgment to it. It is an only a good thing. It can only bring about God's goodness and favor. And so back to this image here. To say that there is no temple in the city, and the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, is to speak of direct, unhindered, everlasting access to God and His goodness. God's presence and goodness is in no way confined or restricted or behind a curtain in the temple or just only seen by faith. It is beheld and experienced freely and continually. Again, remember that there's overlapping metaphors and images here. This city is the people of God. And the people of God live in this new creation, all, all, of, the, all of creation. And so the point isn't simply that there's this physical city with no physical temple in it. The point is that the whole creation is filled with the presence and glory of God. The world is God's theater to display his presence and glory. The whole creation is the temple of God. It brings to mind a verse like Habakkuk 2.14, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Not just here, not just there, but everywhere. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How do the waters cover the sea? I struggle to even explain that. They're everywhere. The, the waters are the sea. They completely fill them. There's not a square inch, millimeter of the sea that is not water. And so will be the expansiveness, the obviousness, the universality of the knowledge of the glory of God in the world to come. It will fill it as the waters cover the sea. Which leads into the next verse there in Revelation 21, verse 23. 
And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Now, remember that this city is the people of God. I'm going to keep reminding you of that. So while it's possible to see this as saying that there's actually no physical sun and moon in the sky here, it seems more likely to be giving us another metaphor. Besides, notice that it doesn't actually say there is no sun or moon. It just says that there's no need of them. Rather, the thing that you will see most clearly, like the sun at midday, the thing that will shine brighter, more obviously, more gloriously than the sun at midday, and the thing by which you will see everything else will be the great glory and grace of God and the Lamb, which is Jesus. Instead of a physical temple, you will see the glory of God everywhere. Just like the sun shines on everything, illuminates all things, so will the presence of God. And notice that part of this light comes from the Lamb. Part of this glory that is displaying through all creation is the glory and the light of the Lamb. Again, in Revelation, the Lamb is the Lamb who was slain for the sins of God's people, whose, by whose blood God's people have washed themselves white. The Lamb is also the shepherd of God's people, just as Jesus. Specifically, the risen, or the crucified, risen, and reigning Jesus. And so part of what will be eternally displayed for all to see in the world to come, as clear as if there were Billboards everywhere, except not the ugliness of billboards, will be the saving work of Christ and God's wisdom and power and glory and love in that. In other words, you and I will never forget our dependence on God's work for us in Jesus, our dependence on the Lamb who was slain. You and I will never cease to wonder and be amazed at God's humbling of himself to give himself to die for us. Not just the mighty power and glory of God, but also the humble love and self-giving of God will be displayed for all to see. So before we go on, let's just pause for a minute and try to, try to get a sense of what this will be like. Because if you're like me, it can be hard to to grasp and fully understand this, and certainly we will never fully understand it until we are there. But you and I will know the presence and glory and goodness of God as surely and clearly and confidently as we know our own name, as we know that the grass is green. Well, not in the summer, but in the winter. It will not be something that we strive to know, that we struggle to know, that we struggle to believe in, or we know only by faith, but something that we we know with certainty, something that we see with our eyes. We're told that they will see his face. The knowledge of the glory of God will fill the earth as much as the waters cover the sea. Not one man or woman will be able, will deny or be blind to the knowledge of the glory of God. Not one thought or intention will occur or word be spoken that ignores or denies or minimizes the knowledge of the glory of God. 
we will know that God is near us and with us directly, unhindered, always. Nothing will obscure his goodness from us. And again, there will be no threat or danger of, of his judgment. You can think about this even now in this life. God is, is the source of every good thing. And yet his goodness is, is marred by, by sin. And so this means that every taste of goodness in this life, every glimpse and experience of goodness in this life, any joy and comfort and pleasure and success we experience in this life is only a taste, is only a snapshot of the joy of God dwelling with us for all eternity. So you can think about various things. You can think about the pleasure of eating good food and drinking good drink, the wonder of beautiful scenery of mountains and streams and waterfalls, the gentle lapping of waves on the beach. You can think about the joys of relationships, the excitement of competition and sport, the thrill of adventure and discovery, the pleasure of reading a good book or listening to good music. All that is truly good here is merely whetting our appetite, preparing us for what is even better there. Or similarly, you can think of it like this. All of the good things that we experience here, all of our taste of joys here, they're all tinged with a little bit of disappointment. Right? We all know Ecclesiastes to be true. Nothing delivers as much as we want it to be. Everything lets us down just a little or a lot. Part of that is we're tempted to make idols of good things that come to us. We're tempted to turn our vision and our, our focus from God to these good things that he's given us. And so we find life fleeting, like breath, everything meaningless in the words of Ecclesiastes. But there, goodness and joy and celebration and success will no longer be any competition or threat to the worship and love of God. God will be able to bless us fully, give us every good thing, and we will enjoy it fully, even as we enjoy him fully. And not only will this be true of us, but it will be true of all of creation. This is something what the next few verses are getting at. Starting at verse 24. By its light, that is the, the, the light of the glory of God, will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. We talked about that last week. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Now, this section is a little bit harder to understand. But as with much of Revelation, we are helped when we realize that much of this language and images come from elsewhere in Scripture. This vision is drawing on um, much that has come earlier in Scripture, especially from the Old Testament. And so this whole passage we're looking at today, these, these verses, are drawing heavily from Isaiah 60. So if, if you turn to Isaiah 60, or, or just read, uh, just notice with me, notice some of the similarities. I'm going to read a few sections and, and, and jump ahead. I'll tell you what verses I'm at. So starting at verse 1 in Isaiah 60, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. 
and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant, and your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. Jump down to verse 11. Your gates shall be open continually. Revelation 21 says, right? Day and night they shall not be shut. That people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. Jumping down to verse 19. The sun shall be no more. Your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you, you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light. And your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. Now, as with much Old Testament prophecy, there is often near-term partial fulfillments in view. Like, how is this going to be fulfilled in the, in the, next, in the near term? And, but there's also typically, often, also far-term, ultimate, final, everlasting fulfillments. So even though aspects of this point forward to eternity, it says everlasting light there a couple times, parts of this point forward to Revelation 21, we also see that it portrays the restoration of Jerusalem at that time. Old Jerusalem, you might say. The city of the people of God. It, it portrays that one day that city would shine with the glory of God. It would be an influential and desirable and attractive city where all the other nations and kings outside of it, they would flock there and bring the best of their treasures. And so in light of that, it can be a bit challenging to apply these images of a physical dimensional city and from a time when there were still nations and kings and unbelievers outside of that city to the vision of the new creation. So how is this being used in Revelation? What, what is the meaning here? Well, I'm going to remind you once again that this city in Revelation is the people of God. And so it doesn't seem that this is saying that kings and nations are literally coming in and out of this city. There's no outside the city to speak of anymore. This city is the whole creation. The whole creation is God's city. The whole creation is God's dwelling place with his people. Rather, in saying that kings and nations are flocking to the new Jerusalem with their wealth and tributes seems to be giving us an image of all of creation recognizing and acknowledging the beauty and goodness and wisdom of God and his redeemed people. All of creation beholding and delighting in God's presence among his people. Or to put it negatively, no more will God's people be weak and dismissed, mocked or ridiculed. No more will God's people be small and insignificant. No more will God's wisdom and ways be disregarded or rejected. Everyone will acknowledge God's ways and will to be good and praise him for them. 
and all that is the best of humanity and the best of creation, the glory and the honor of the nations, will be brought forth for the sake of God's glory and the good of his people. You can think about it like this. No longer will human glory be at odds with or in competition with God's glory. No longer will the glory of kings and presidents and CEOs be in competition and the rule of the rulers of the world be in competition with the rule of God. No longer will the rule and glory of, that we seek in our own hearts be at odds with or in competition with God's rule. Uh, to use another uh, image from the book of Revelation, we will all cast our crowns before him and say, you are better. So we've considered a few things in these verses and can think about it in, in three, three ways. Three realities of the coming kingdom of God. First, the unhindered, unrestricted presence of God among us. Second, the unhindered, unrestricted display of God's glory and grace. And then third, the unhindered, unrestricted, universal acknowledgement and worship of God. So God's glory displayed, God's glory acknowledged and loved and delighted in. As you begin to reflect on these things, I imagine at least some of you find it, if you're like me, find it a bit difficult to grasp what this will actually be like, surely. And in that, find it a little bit difficult to fully rejoice in and long for such things. And I've said this before, but it seems to me that one of the reasons for this difficulty is that we are not very God-centered in our thinking and God-centered in our longing. Because this picture of paradise that the Bible gives us is thoroughly about God. It is thoroughly God-centered. Again, the high point of this vision is that God will dwell among his people, and we will see him as clearly as is possible to see him. We will know he is with us as surely as that is possible, with no sin or suffering to hinder us. Certainly, there are other joys of this kingdom. We're told there are no tears, no death, no mourning, no pain, no more weakness or thorns in the flesh to deal with, no more sin or temptation to sin, no more being deceived by sin, deceived by other people. There's complete and utter satisfaction. There's a renewed creation with all of the wonders and joys and tastes and smells and sounds of, of God's creation. There's being re reunited with loved ones. Yes, there are many other great things in which to hope for. But above all of those, we are called to see the nearness of the presence of God and the expansiveness and universality of the presence of God as greater, as more joy-inducing, as more satisfying than anything else. And as much as we may struggle today to find joy and put our hope in that, a likely possibility is that we are not yet sufficiently God-centered in our thinking. 
God is not the thing that our hearts are most seeking after, most satisfied in. Um, many times we, we can tend to approach God almost exclusively in a way, in the same way that we would a self-help book or a life coach or therapist or TED Talk. How can you help me get the most out of this life? Here are my needs and desires. Help me with them. How can you help me in the 70, 80, 90 years to escape pain, maximize pleasure, and better, better handle all the people in my life? We know what we want. We know what we think we need. And rather than letting God renew our desires and tell us what we actually need, we ask him to be a servant to us and just cater to us. And we are slow to realize that true life and happiness is knowing God himself, being known by him. What we need more than all of his blessings is God himself. For us, with us, his rule over us, his love for us, his presence with us. Scripture tells us that he is the greatest treasure for whom uh, it is worth losing everything else if we could only get him. So this is what we ultimately long for, what we ultimately are to long for, what we ultimately need. Um, and those last words of, of this book of Revelation, the last words of the Bible, are incredibly fitting. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. And so the Bible finishes. Come, Lord Jesus. Even though we may not recognize it, this is the cry of our hearts. This is what we long for. In our sin, our struggles with sin, come Lord Jesus. In our suffering, come Lord Jesus. In the monotony of life, come Lord Jesus. In our weakness and inability, come Lord Jesus. In our battles with temptation and addiction, come Lord Jesus. And even in our joys and our celebrations and the times when we are tempted to think that this life can fulfill us, come Lord Jesus. I have found, and perhaps you have as well, that some of the best helps in feeling this cry and this longing come from stories. And um, C.S. Lewis is a great help in, in many of this, in many of his, his writings, but especially his description at the end of the last battle, Chronicles of Narnia, um, is really one of the most helpful things that fleshes out what we've been reading here. Let me read a couple paragraphs of that. The eagle is right, said the Lord Diggory. The Narnia you're thinking of was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia which has always been here and always will be here. Just as our world, England and all, is only a shadow or copy of something in Aslan's real world. You need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. All of the old Narnia that mattered, all the dear creatures have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. And of course, it is different. As different as a real thing is from the shadow or as waking life is from a dream. And then the narrator goes on to explain, the new Narnia was a deeper country Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. 
If you ever get there, you will know what I mean. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that sometimes it sometimes looked a little like this. In the life to come, there will be no more longing for what was before. We will be home. We will know that we will be home. We will know that we are where we really belong. And until that day, we cry out in a million different ways, Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray.